I declare open the public hearing of the House of Representatives Standing Committee on the Social Policy and Legal Affairs in Canberra for the inquiry into local adoption. I now welcome the, representatives, the representative from the Centre for Independent Studies to give evidence today. For the Hansard record, would you please state your full name and the capacity in which you appear before the committee? Dr Jeremy Samet, Senior Research Fellow, the Centre for Independent Studies. Thank you. I now invite you to make a brief opening statement before we proceed to discussion. Thank you, Dr Samet. I'd like to thank the committee for the invitation to make a submission to this inquiry and for its time today. With regards to my submission, I would, uh, I believe the National Child Protection Framework that I have proposed would help encourage state and territory governments to develop policies that would ensure permanency for children in out-of-home care, including making adoption a viable option. However, because the guiding principles embodied in the proposed framework are based on the system-wide child protection reforms underway in New South Wales, this framework, together with the accompanying data-based national accountability mechanisms that I propose, would do more than simply promote the greater use of adoption. It would also encourage states and territories to develop balanced, effective and accountable child protection services across the full spectrum of early intervention, family support and out-of-home care, spanning the three key goals of prevention, restoration and permanency. I just want to make a couple of points that might provide some broader and important context that I think recommend the approach to a national framework that my submission sketches. The extensive research that I've done on the problems in Australia's child protection system have convinced me that the greater use of adoption is in the best interest of many thousands of children, children who otherwise will be harmed by drifting in and being churned through long-term care and who will not find the permanent homes and safe families for life that all children need to thrive and have the best chance to achieve great outcomes in life. However, nothing I say in support of adoption is intended to diminish or deny the experience of the stolen generations or victims of forced adoptions who were harmed by flawed adoption practices in earlier times. These stories are important and they need to be heard as part of the process of creating open adoption models today that do not re repeat the mistakes of the past, which properly acknowledge the issues surrounding identity and trauma for children, parents and families. This point and other important points get, get lost in the polarised and understandably emotional debate about child protection, which constantly pits family preservation against adoption as inherently irreconcilable approaches to keeping children safe. On the one hand, opponents of adoption have claimed that the reforms in New South Wales are a, quote, grab the child and run solution, which will see adoptions occur as the fast resort and see more children removed without families getting the support they need to keep children. On the other hand, adoption advocates, and this is a reflection on my own work, have concentrated on convincing policymakers to overcome the historic taboo on adoption, the notion that adoption is an inherently harmful practice for children. To do this, we've needed to show that the solution, the awesome legal intervention by the state into the lives of children and families that adoption is, is in proportion to the scale of the problems in the out-of-home care system that are doing real and often lifelong harm to children. I note that the terms of reference to this inquiry implicitly agrees correctly that systems in all jurisdictions are systemically plagued by the problems of churn, drift and lack of permanency. However, to move the debate in a, in a politically feasible fashion beyond the war between advocates of adoption and family preservation, what we need is to look at the failure, the operation and the restructuring of these systems as true systems. This starts with recognising how current systems are not working properly across the board to achieve the desired results. They are not helping families properly to keep children out of care nor are they properly helping families to be safely reunited, nor are they ensuring permanency for children. We then need to have the policies that achieve effective outcomes across the three goals of prevention, restoration and permanency. I would argue, and my submission argues, that we have a working model of such a reform system being developed in New South Wales, which seeks to, one, front load spending on targeted and effective early intervention and family support services to allow children to live safely with parents wherever possible, and two, ensure that when living safely at home has proved not possible within a child-centred time frame, children achieve permanency in a timely manner, including via adoption. Just to finish, I want to underline what I stress in my submission and in my research report on the New South Wales reforms that is linked in the submission with respect to how embedding the principles of the New South Wales reforms within the structure of the proposed national framework might shape and influence state and territory policies. If the national framework encourages states and territories to emulate the New South Wales model, as I recommend they should, embracing the same priorities as in New South Wales will achieve an appropriate 
and overdue rebalancing of the, of the principles of family preservation and permanency to ensure that child protection systems nationwide operate in a child-centred way. However, what this specifically and crucially does not mean is that adoptions will occur as the fast resort in Australia. Adoptions will only occur as the last but timely resort to achieve permanency in the best interests of children, after the best efforts to assist families have been tried and have not succeeded in enabling children to go home safely and permanently. I thank the community again and I'll be pleased to answer any questions. Dr Samet, thank you so much. And at first may I um, start by thanking you for attending the hearing and to thank you and commend you for all your forensic research and your comprehensive information and you know, um, research that you've provided, not just to this hearing in your submission, but indeed as part of your research on this very important um, issue and important matter. So I just wanted to Thank acknowledge you. that and commend you for that. Um, as, as you've noted, um, um, and as uh, I noted at the outset, this inquiry is a forward-looking inquiry, and it's not about uh, past for forced adoptions that have taken in, in place in Australia. But can I ask you, do you, that being said, do you believe the history of uh, past forced adoptions and past political and cultural situation that existed in Australia, and indeed the fragmented nature of the different state systems, is a key, indeed, conscious or unconscious barrier to uh, forward-looking as a local adoption, as a viable option? I think there is no question that the, the flawed practices of the past have created an incredible cultural obstacle to mm. the idea of adoption. Mm. The problem with that is that it blocks, it, it, it distracts attention from trying to make up for past practices by not having adoptions today mm. means that we are perpetuating a new series of problems mm. that are registering in a child protection system which is overburdened, which doesn't meet children's needs, which is leading to poor outcomes in life mm. for many children. Uh, it's not just a cultural problem, it then, then becomes a political problem because what we currently have, as I said in my remarks, is a very polarised debate where on the one hand uh, one group of people talk about adoption, the other side tends to talk about early intervention and uh, prevention, but that doesn't really get us anywhere unless we look at the way the system is failing as a whole mm. and we try and create a system that focuses on achieving the three key goals of mm -hmm. prevention, restoration and then permanency. And that way, I think mm. we've got a feasible way of going forward to say, look, we are not ripping children from mm. um, mothers and children and, and fathers mm. anymore. We're certainly mm. not doing it based on marital status as mm. we did in the past. We're certainly mm. not doing it on the basis of race exactly. as we did in the past. We are trying to achieve permanency and the kind of homes that children need in circumstances in which, unfortunately, their parents are fundamentally incapable of mm -hmm. providing that. Yeah. And we need to do that within a child-centred time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, the reforms in New South Wales uh, have created a, a two-year permanency deadline. For some of us, that may sound like a, a harsh policy, but you've got to remember that two years is a very, very long time in the life of a child. We also need to remember that childhood is fleeting, that period of life needs to be optimised, otherwise children's lives are compromised. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you. And as you, you've so aptly said, childhood is fleeting, so that brings me to my next question. Would you agree that timeliness is a critical factor um, and that one of the most important ref reforms in the New South Wales um, reforms was the need for mandatory um, decision-making, yeah. um, determining that, that, like, once that determination is made that the child could not go so safely home, yeah. that there would be a six-month period for a child under two and then a two-year period for a child yeah. over the age of two. Yeah. Do you think that's one of the critical, critical elements that has... Uh, you know, enabled us to see the success we've already seen. I think, I think it is. There's been a long history of uh, what's known as permanency planning laws uh, mm. being introduced in Australia, stretching back to, you know, I think the mid-1990s. But the problem is they've always been dead letters and mm. they've never been enforced because the culture within child protection departments across Australia has always been focusing on family preservation at almost all costs. And that mm. means particularly that legal action is almost never taken to... 
legally free adoption, uh, free, free a child for adoption, even if they've been in care for a very long time mm. and have very little chance of going home. So one of the premises and one of the pieces, key pieces of evidence for the reforms in New South Wales is that the average time spent in care for mm. a child in New South Wales is 12.5 years. That's almost as long as children spend within um, the education system. Uh, the other crucial piece of evidence is that 35% uh, of children in New South Wales per year have had three or more moves. Um, so their placements have either broken down or they've been restored and the restoration has broken down and they've, and they've uh, had to go back into care. Uh, the key thing, as I said in my previous answer, about permanency timelines is that they, is that they put a deadline upon which we, we can help families, we need to help families to mm -hmm. try and uh, fix their problems and enable children to go back, uh, to be able to go back home safely. But if they can't, we've got, mm -hmm. to reckon, we've got to make sure the system is focused on what is in the best interest of that child. Mm -hmm. And what children need is stability. Mm -hmm. Every child needs stability and, mm -hmm. and a permanent home to thrive. Mm -hmm. And we need to ensure that the system delivers that for children who will mm -hmm. otherwise drift and churning and, and be churned in care and, yeah. and spend all, many children spend most of their, their childhoods in, in care till they're 18 and then in many cases are literally on the streets as mm. a result. Mm. The other point I would make about, uh, again, I recognise that the two-year deadline may seem harsh. The way I would, I would justify that is you, you have to remember that when we're talking about child protection, we are talking about one of the most, probably the most wicked social policy problems that we face. Mm. What we've got is many families who have often had a lifetime and often generational problems within their own families and within their own lives. They've got serious drug and alcohol, domestic violence and other problems. The task we set ourselves is to try and unpack or, or address and fix that lifetime of problem within a narrow time frame that is going to ultimately mean that that child will mm. be able to live in a safe and permanent home. Mm. That's why the two-year deadline is needed, mm. because the reality is that, in many of those cases, in many in many cases, some families simply can't be fixed within mm. a timeline that will ensure mm. that they can provide a child with the care and love and attention mm. that they need. Mm. Um, this is the unavoidable hard reality yeah. of child protection. And the question then becomes that, well, yes, of course, we need to support families and do everything we can to try and fix these families. We ultimately have to do what is in the best interest of children. Mm. So it's not just the, um, the point about uh, that childhood is fleeting, but rather this cycle of despair, if you like, that continues if a child is bounced around the system. And then, you know, because we saw some data at the last hearing in relation to... Um, you know, um, uh, violence, crime, yeah. drug addiction, sure. etc. Yeah. Uh, uh, particularly the New South Wales reforms, because mm. they have also been based on embracing an investment approach, which looks at what is the total cost of children who, lifetime costs of children who have been involved in the child protection system. Mm. They've established that, yes, across all these sort of mm. services that, that you mentioned, homeless, mm. drug and alcohol, mm. domestic violence, um, Basically, a lot of the clients in those systems have mm. been known to mm. government through child protection systems, often from, from mm. birth. We do face an, an intergenerational problem. We've got intergenerational dependence and dysfunction mm. in a small segment of a small but significant segment of society. Yeah. And unfortunately, I believe one of the only real ways to address inter, intergenerational problems is to have intergenerational solutions. Yeah. And I believe that. A child protection system that focuses on what is in the best long-term interests of children, mm. particularly through achieving permanency and adoption, mm -hmm. is part of that intergenerational solution. Yeah. And um, one more question, and then I'll pass to the Deputy Chair. So, da uh, well, so it's got two parts to it. So the first, the first part is um, in relation to the New South Wales reforms uh, that you you mentioned and the success that we've already seen in the New South Wales reforms. What do you think is one of the key elements of those reforms <coughs> that is the... I mean, it's, to your point earlier, you've got to have a significant change to bring about reform of something so complex, yep. so incredibly complex, that uh, that is has the overlay of political yep. and cultural biases yep. and a lot of history. Uh, so what do you think is one of the key things that was able to cut through that through the New South Wales reforms? 
Well, all child protection reform will take significant political leadership. Mm. Um, in New South Wales, we have had uh, successive ministers who have been committed to trying to improve the system, and by that I mean improve the whole system. Mm -hmm. They've had an honest look at where the system is failing, and they've recognised that, as I said in my opening right, it, it's mm -hmm. not effective at keeping children out of care, it's not effective at restoring children um, mm. back home when they are in care, and it's not yeah. effective at achieving parents. So they've accepted that there are fundamental problems. They've looked at the cost. They've realised that the cost is significant. They've realised that they can spend that money more effectively. Mm -hmm. um, they've also, as I understand it, it's also been run out of um, Department of uh, Premier and Cabinet. Mm -hmm. So there's been, a, there's been strong, um, leadership, strong leadership and support yeah. from um, Premiers O'Farrell, Baird and now Berejiklian as well. Right. So those are the key factors. Yeah. Uh, if for the information for um, members of the community, if you look at my the report that I uh, I wrote um, back in November, I paid particular attention to how um, ministers and premiers have um, crafted their used, uh, effectively told people what the problem is. Mm. That the problem is spends a lot of money. It's not achieving good outcomes across the board for children and families, mm. and they need to find a new way that mm -hmm. addresses these three key okay. goals. Yeah. So it's been a it's been a, a very very well thought out. Mm -hmm. uh, Process, which is to credit to both the, the politicians in charge of it and the, and the uh, departmental bureaucrats who've, who've put it together. Uh, why I commend it to the committee as yeah. the foundation for a national approach, because yeah. I, I, having you know, been watching child protection and child protection reform for ten years, I've never seen anything that comes close to this from any mm. other jurisdiction that matches the scope and how well thought through and well planned mm -hmm. and how how it's also focusing on true accountability, true effectiveness and yeah. true balance. Which brings me to my last question in relation to data. So data, clearly in your submission, um, you note um, that data is key to the accountability framework in relation to the three areas, prevention, restoration and permanency. So... Can, can I ask, um, I'd like to ask, do you, do you believe the length of stay and the number of placement moves is, a key, is one of the, the top key data points that you're looking at? Or? I believe all those, all the data points I mentioned in my submission are yeah. key, and I, I'll, I'll just backtrack. Yeah. We do have a lot of child protection data yeah. released now through um, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare and also through the Productivity Commission's report on government services. But it is very voluminous. Yeah. Um, it's hard to extract real meaningful data from it that will guide policy. Mm -hmm. It's also very siloed, mm -hmm. um, so it looks at out-of-home care, but it doesn't sort of explain that, you know, if you've got problems in out-of-home care, that reflects what's happening in the statutory system and likewise... Um, Mm. And likewise, you know, so it doesn't tell us, doesn't give us meaningful stats around what I think are those. I've listed three or four in each under each category of prevention, yeah. restoration. They're not exhaustive, but I think they are meaningful yeah. in terms of telling us how and why, this, if if is a better word, if the system is actually doing what it claims to be doing in those three areas. Yeah. It, it, you know, we we all have we have great. Um, policy documents and, and statutory sure. uh, requirements and, uh, to talk about prevention and talk about restoration and talk about mm. um, uh, permanency and family preservation, yeah. but there's no way of actually measuring how measuring effective it actually is yeah. and then drilling down from that to what the services that yeah. are being provided to these families claim to be doing, what they're actually doing and mm. whether they're actually making any difference at mm. all. And just to give one piece... Uh, the New South Wales reforms were based on a review done by David Tune, a former, um, former public servant. Mm -hmm. uh, they make the point that a lot of the services that are provided to families and children are, haven't been evaluated, mm. and so we've got no real measure, measure of, of whether their effectiveness. I would also um, draw the community's attention in my report. I, I mentioned the... Uh, for many years, Victoria has been seen sort of like the gold standard for doing early intervention and prevention, and they invested in the mid-2000s, a lot of money in reforms in, in Victoria. Uh, the uh, Cummins report, uh, inquiry, and then a report by the Auditor-General noted that basically there is very little data to show that, and that, that the investment in those services has done anything to improve outcomes for children, let alone the overall performance of the system. 
So this is why I think that as well as clearly articulating what the goal should be, how we should, what data we should use to measure whether they're being achieved, and then also have a framework that signals what the real priorities in terms of reform and making the services more effective, mm. I think that's a real way mm. for the federal government, given the, the constitutional limitations and mm. the fact that uh, child protection is a state responsibility, yeah. for the federal, federal government, federal parliament, to exercise real leadership in this area. Mm. And I reiterate, it's leadership not just to achieve more adoptions, it's leadership to make these entire systems function more effectively across the board mm. and achieve all those goals, three that goals, we want to for in a realistic, mm. effective way. Yeah. Thank you. Dr Thank Samet. You. Thanks, Chair. Thanks, yes. um, Dr Samet, for your evidence today. Um, we've not had the benefit of a briefing from New South Wales yet, mm. so um, I'm going to ask you a few questions about it. Um, but were you involved in the development or the implementation of policy for New South Wales Cup? Uh, not in a direct sense, but I think it'd be fair to say that my work um, has influenced and shaped the You were called the on to direction. give evidence, advice? Or no. No, okay. Informally. And, okay. Yeah. Um, so it's my understanding that it is quite new. Yes. Right. So I'm... Um, you're a very enthusiastic proponent of it. I'm just wondering what evidence you've got at this point to um, point to us to say that um, you... I mean, we've seen from departmental figures that there's been an increase in the numbers of adoptions. Yes. But that is all. Okay. Okay? So I'm very interested to know um, how many packages around this targeted earlier intervention yes. program, for example, that you note in your submission, yes. have been rolled out since March of 2017 yes. when it was implemented? They are being rolled out. I can't confirm how many have actually been rolled out. But New South Wales, not only have they managed to achieve an increase in adoptions, they've also managed to reduce, uh, for the first time in a long time, I don't have the specifics, uh, but the... Uh, the number of children entering care, and I think that I'm pretty sure that would be unique in Australia. Now that speaks to a number of things. It doesn't just speak to the increase in adoptions. It could also, and this is what I believe, and, and the department may be able to confirm this or not, that the reforms are starting to have an impact because they're starting to roll out new programs, more effective services. It's very early days, I admit. I don't have the evidence to, at this stage to, to support everything that the New South Wales uh, reforms uh, claim they will do, but I would emphasise that what they have done is that they haven't just listened to people like me who've spoken mainly about adoption. adoption. They've also done what um, numerous inquiries, almost every inquiry that's been held um, about child protection and that's been many, many, many inquiries over the last 20 years has done, which is they've always said we spend too much on out-of-home out care and we don't spend enough on uh, early intervention and prevention services. And explicit as part of what New South Wales is doing, they are saying we are going to do that. We, we accept that argument and we are going to... But we're also going to do it in a way that is evaluated and that can make sure that... Uh, providers of those services are accountable. And I'll give you the classic example, which is in out-of-home care. Um, before, before, the packages were more they were um, provided by NGOs, uh, delivered under tender, but they were more or less open-ended. Now, that gave an incentive for NGOs not to focus on achieving permanency for children, because if a children, child remains in care for a longer period follows that the funding will, will follow that child and remain with the NGO for that period. So there's a new outcomes-based contract system that uh, requires NGOs to, and providers of out-of-home care package to establish permanency for children within two years. So again, it's a, I, I don't have the evidence to say that the New South Wales reforms have made a huge difference yet. I believe they will. That will be tested in time. But I reinforce that they have they have addressed what I think are the real problems in a very systemic, systematic way, and they're doing a lot of stuff that a lot of people have called for for a long time. Certainly the um, department, the Commonwealth Department we spoke to yesterday, uh, last hearing, sorry, not yesterday, last sitting week, 
um, suggests that they would want to wait and see some of those outcomes. For um, uh, they were unable to suggest that there was, you know, direct whether it was a direct correlation of the reforms and some of the stats that they were seeing. So they were a little kind of circumspect about that. I guess the enthusiastic support around the two-year placement mm. permanency support, is that what we call the permanency, the new permanency rules, isn't yep. it? Yep. So they have been in play for, if my calculations are right, maybe three or four years in New South Wales. Is that like... Um, they, were they were introduced in, in 2014, yep. um, where there was to be... It was made yep. mandatory for a decision... Yep around the care, depending on the child's age. Um, so um, do you... Does that account for the increase in adoptions, in your view? I think it has made a difference. Uh, there was also a specific... Uh, a, a, tar a targeted program that was designed to uh, speed up the backlog of adoptions, and that has been, made a material difference. However... Uh, the, the reforms you were referring to were the Safe Home for Life reforms, which did focus exclusively, I would say, on adoption. They have now been supplemented by, um, an, uh, by additional reforms, these reforms around out-of-home care, around targeted support and early intervention services. So to, to return to my original point, this is where the New South Wales reforms have got the balance right, because they're saying, yes, if children need permanency and if... Within a, re within a child centred time frame, children can't achieve permanency. Uh, they need to, that we need to think about adoption and uh, ensure that children have a safe and permanent family home for life. But they are not doing that in a vacuum. They are at the same time saying we need to put all our efforts into achieving restorations. We need to put all our efforts into early intervention and prevention to keep as many children safely at home so as we'll possible. So we'll talk to the Department of New South Wales about all of that additional yep. work to be sure. done because we have absolutely zero data on that, sure. what they're doing, yep. what impacts that is, who's monitoring that, how they report that, we don't know. Sure. So they're all questions that we you know, really need to kind of put there. But, I mean, you've made clear that you're a big fan of the uh, reforms and you'd like to see them informing a national kind of um, framework and, um, you know, I certainly um, share a concern around ensuring that there is as much kind of attention going into the prevention phases and the early intervention, which has been agreed sorely lacking in many um, jurisdictions to date. Can I... Uh, yep. Happy to answer that. Um, you have to remember that before any adoption is finalised, Mm -hmm. It has to go before a court, and a court has to be convinced that this adoption is in the best interest of the child. I don't believe that any given um, just the nature of, you know, of fair legal proceedings, let alone the whole history of adoption and forced adoption and stolen generation, I don't believe that any court in Australia is going to uh, say yes to adoption if it was a grab the child and run or a fast, fast solution. So what the court will need to see is that genuine effort has been made to assist families. Now, this sort of sounds like I'm walking both sides of the street, but I'm not actually. We need to be able to say we have provided that family with those services so that a court can be convinced that the adoption is justified and that, you know, the rights, that getting the balance right between the rights of the parents and the, and the rights of the child is in proper whack. So, Hopefully, if and this is you know, I hope that everyone will have that those services will prove really effective, and most children will be able to stay at home. But if they can't, the court will need to be convinced that those efforts have been made, and that adoption is not the fast option; it is the last resort after all efforts have been made to try and ensure that family can stay together. Yeah, no, and that point is made clear in your submission. So thanks for reiterating that. I think um, one of the triggers for this inquiry were the um, ever-increasing numbers of children in out-of-home care. Sure. And that is a national <coughs> crisis. There's no way of sugarcoating that. Um, and that's um, certainly at the forefront of my thinking in this inquiry. Um, so I'll be very keen to see New South Wales' figures on that front as well. 
but I'm happy to hand back to you, Chair. Okay, thank you, Ms. Clayton. Um, yeah, just just yes. a couple here. I mean, uh, you, and again, you just reinforce then that uh, adoption is basically the last option for permanency. Um, what other options do you see that are available and the negatives and the positives associated with those options? Obviously, you consider all of these before you go to adoption sure. as the last option. Look, well, the, the obvious option is to keep children with families. In many cases, um, that will perpetuate harm. Um, the reality also is already that we do do a lot of that already and that many children are harmed before going into care. So we've got a big problem of... Uh, many children having what's called high needs, uh, very difficult behaviours, other emotional, psychological problems, makes them very difficult to be cared for in a normal foster family. So we're seeing two things. Because of that, we're seeing two things. We're seeing um, increase in residential care for kids who simply can't live in a normal normal foster family because their problems are too severe, and that's often and that's often compounded not just by the harm at home but by the churn and drift and instability they, they achieve. Um, we also have a situation where there is a demand that policymakers, uh, in, particularly in previous inquiries, have been called on to professionalise out-of-home care where we say children are, there are so many children with high needs in care that we simply can't have them with a normal family, a normal foster family. We need to have professional full-time care. I would argue that a, that a system that has to employ full-time professional carers, a child protection system is a failed system and mm. probably not really worth its name. What are the other options? There is kinship care. In some cases that can be appropriate, particularly uh, if there is uh, family members who are able and willing to provide um, care for children. My concern about that is that there's a lot of evidence that a lot of kin carers are grandmothers in particular and often um, sometimes um, you know, on... on the pension, they've got their own health problems, um, they're older and we're asking them to care for children who have been damaged and traumatised and that is a very, very difficult, um, a very, very difficult um, ask for them. Um, the next option is guardianship. Um, there are a lot of people say to me, well, you don't need adoptions, you just need guardianship is the appropriate way to go. Um, I note that Victoria has done that. Um, and they have increased their numbers of you know, children um, uh, in permanent guardianship. But I would argue that adoption is a better option because it goes closest to recreating the biological bonds between parent and child that is intrinsic to families. And for children as well, it, it, by recreating as best as we can that relationship, it's a relationship for life. It's not just until you're 18. And I think it's like one of those situations where, you know, if you, sort of like you, if you adoption, you bought it and you're a family and you deal with all the vicissitudes and problems that happens, but, you know, it's permanent. It's, and it provides increased stability. I think it, it, it can help the bonding and the attachment that children need with parents as well. Uh, just give a slight illustration of... And, of just on that, sure. though, I assume that you'd be a supporter of, of that... Um, um, oh, no, no, sorry. Keep going. Sure. Um, I'll just give one, a, a, a bit of a... Anecdotal example: I ran into um, a girl who I li who lived next door when I was growing up, and she was, you know, she was taking her son to look at uh, prospective universities and you know where he might like to study. And I was casting my mind back to uh, a presentation I went to by an NGO, which was talking about a a pack that it had developed for care leavers, and. Kids who leave care need a pact to negotiate the next part of life, while these days over here, parents actually go with kids to, the, to university, even in the first week, which I found incredible. So my point being that that sort of, to me, dramatises the level of investment and resources that a, a family will invest, and it's, I think it's fundamentally different in, under a guardianship relationship where you're not their... Not, carers are not their parents... They are an agent of the state who are providing temporary accommodation until the child's 18. 
And it doesn't all stop at 18. It doesn't all stop at 18. Yeah. Yeah. The other problem, of course, with the kids, well, I was going to make a point mm. with carers or uh, mm. foster, is the fact that it does stop at 18. It does stop and, at 18. And, uh, you know, if kids are going through to university, mm. uh, you know, yeah. that, that obligation really needs to follow them through to, mm. to at least give them a chance to. I will, I will say there is, there is, um, there is serious discussion of increasing um, care to, to post-18. Um, I would think that actually reinforces the points I'm making about adoption. I would just also like to say that um, one of the mischaracterisations of the case for adoption is that it's a way to you know, not have to spend any more money on you know, care and, and child and save money. Well, maybe in the long run, because hopefully we won't have kids in care for 18, but you will need to invest in post-adoption support services. You know, you've got kids from suboptimal backgrounds who are going into adoptive families. They need support, kids need support, but I fundamentally believe that a, that a timely, timely permanency and through adoption is the best way to help kids overcome the trauma and disadvantage that they've had in early periods of life. Can I just, one other one, and, and, and you know, when you get into this job and you get into things that you don't understand a lot of, you learn, you learn things. Now, I, I, I've been advocating for many, many years in relation to, um, you know, tra gay and transgender issues. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm trying to cha change in, in law is that allows a transgender person that's been identified at birth as one gender to be able to change their birth certificate to reflect who they are now. And, uh, and, and, and that's, that's been a battle which we're still trying to get. But I noticed with adopted children that they can actually change their birth certificate or they do change their birth certificate on adoption mm -hmm. and, and, and you know, there seems to be a contradiction there now you know I, I'm very interested to know you know uh, why, why this is con considered next might help me with my argument but why it's considered necessary, uh, necessary you know how that uh, what the, uh, affects the stability uh, and the permanency of the relationship and is there any alternative approaches? And I ask this question deliberately because we've had submissions coming through and I read one here, yeah. uh, here that uh, identifies a person that, uh, that I was when I was born with the ancestry I had when I was born but not unusual way to feel. When I was adopted, I was forced to live yeah. under a false birth certificate. It's an interesting, yeah, and, and, and we've had submissions yeah. on this where they're saying, well, you know, you're forcing me yeah. to change my identity. And so yeah. we can do that with ease there. But in other issues where people actually want it to happen, we, we say it's too hard, we can't do it. So probably the transgender issue is probably beyond my pay grade at this point. You know, no, but, I'm just interested um, that you can I, amend it. You know, I thought that once but, it's written but, but in stone and it stays yeah, there. But you know, I, I, I agree with those submissions that say we need to have a new form of mm. adoption, uh, of a birth certificate that doesn't falsify, falsify children's mm. identity and heritage. Why, why do we allow them to change? But I'll just try, go back and try and explain that. Why did we do it? And what's wrong with it and why shouldn't we do it anymore? I'll, I'll try and answer those three questions. Well, not necessarily why we shouldn't yeah, do it I'll, anymore. Oh, no, 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 not at all, please. But, because I'm sure there are some that would appreciate right, okay. it, but I'm just interested what it has to do with okay. permanency and uh, other options that may be available. There's a basic reason that you're terminating legal rights of existing parents and you're recreating legal rights and the document that gives people the legal right to, you know, parent children, the responsibilities and duties of that apply is the birth certificate. So that's probably the reason. However, there's another reason why we probably didn't pay attention to those identity issues that we're talking about, that the submissions that you mentioned are, are referring to. Mm. That's because adoption used to be practised on the model of children being a blank slate. Mm. So we thought that um, children would own, were purely products of their environment. So if they didn't know they were adoption, uh, adopted, they would simply uh, bond and take on the identity of their parents. But we've known through hard, uh, through hard lessons that have unfortunately been learnt by people who have had problems and unhappy adoptions that those identity and cultural matters really, really matter. And I would say that allowing the birth certificate to show both the natural parents and the adoptive parents is, is the proper way to reflect the, the truth and reality of that situation uh, and their identity. Uh, it's also part of the open adoption model that, you know, children's heritage, birth parents, uh, extended family all need to be acknowledged in that process. And it's also, I think it's, um, it, it's 
moving away from one of the things that adoption used to be, which used to be the whole you know white mm. picket fence, nuclear family approach, mm. and it's recognising that families, not just adoptive families, but, but you know, families in general, are now far more complex and different kinds of entities than they once were. And so what we're talking about with adoption is certainly not falsifying anybody's identity or falsifying the history, but also creating a new form of family that, again, puts all the needs of children at the centre through an open adoption model. And indeed, just to add to that point, um, we've had a number of submissions where... Um, Previous adoptees have talked about that loss of identity and their heritage, yeah. and so I think. Um, thank you for your point and about medical history. Yeah. Yeah. everything, yeah. And, and I think yeah. that's one of the key points here. That one of the fundamental principles of open adoption yeah. is that you retain that biological connection through your certification, and obviously you have the adopted sure. parents recognised as well. Yeah. So, can I, I also just say that um, I agree, agree with all that, but mm. I. I I'll just stress again, we're talking about very different adoptive practices in the past, mm. but we're also talking about very different social situations. You know, as I said before, you know, we're not talking about taking kids away from parents or mothers yeah. in particular because of marital status. We're not talking because mm. of um, you know race and, and those issues. Um, you know, the, the kids who we're talking about who would benefit from adoption um, represent the coalface of very, very serious and entrenched social problems, social problems that I believe are within families that are the major driver of inequality in this country. Um, kids who are born on that bottom rung um, are often destined to stay there. I think that adoption can be one of the drivers of a fairer and more equal Australia by giving kids, all kids, the sort of basic opportunity in life that many of us take for granted. I think I think it's also fair to say too that you know, a lot of kids like to feel inclusive within a, within a family unit and, and don't want to be seen to be different. I mean, yeah. So I can see those yeah. arguments, but nevertheless, yeah. I think it's important that they are able to somehow or other maintain their identity. I, I totally agree. Okay, Dr. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks very much, Dr. Samet, for coming along today. Um, just a few things I want to make clear. How did you come to be involved in uh, sure. child protection? Um, I was working at the Centre for Independent Studies and it was at the time of uh, a very distressing case in New South Wales, which is known as the Ebony case, who was the mm. girl who uh, was starved to death by her parents at Hawke's Nest. Um, you know, one of the ways that... I should mention, um, sure. she was an old patient of mine. OK. Um, one of the ways that, you know, think tanks obviously see important social issues that we think we could make a contribution to, mm -hmm. uh, and this is one of those that was flagged within my organisation. Uh, I began doing some preliminary work on it, and to be honest, I was convinced by what I've call in my book the orthodox approach to child protection, which says that the problem is that we remove children too quickly without providing families enough support and that um, the systems are overburdened because we have this mandatory reporting system that reports every kid for, you know, if they've come to school with a scraped knee and so they can't find the kids who are really in danger like Ebony. I accepted that because it, it sounded intuitively correct, but then I found a, a to cut a long story short, I found you know, two bits of evidence that really made me go down this path and do the work that I found. One was that in New South Wales, over half of the reports, the risk of harm reports that New South Wales docs, as then called, received, concerned um, just 750, 750 families. So this, these are children who are being reported time and time and time again, and they're being reported time and time again because nothing is happening, because the doctors, nurses, teachers, other social workers are reporting, the, are reporting to the department and the department is not doing anything because they are practising family preservation. The second bit of evidence I found was when I started looking at the out-of-home care system and I found all these reports which were saying to me, uh, oh, there's all these high-needs kids in care with all these emotional and developmental and other problems. And then they say, oh, but that's not the problem of the care system. That's the problem because they've been abused and neglected at home and that's developed their problems. So I was in this world of 
cognitive dissonance where people were telling me we're ripping kids out too quickly and putting them in care, but then they're telling me, oh, the reason they're why the costs and the, the problems in, care, in the care system are so big is because, because, you know, uh, because, because they've been abused at home. So putting those two pieces to get, of evidence together has, what, has really what, to cut a long story, is what's led me to believe that adoption, in many cases, is in children's best interest. Reiterating all those points I made previously about the need to ensure that we do prevention, restoration better, as well as permanency. Right. Of, of the children who are being adopted in New South Wales, since we're using the New South Wales example, can you tell me what percentage of those have disabilities? I can't. Um, my sense would be, though, that many of those children would have had, um, as I say, suboptimal experiences in life. Mm -hmm. um, again, this is anecdotal, but I would suggest that they would have been fortunate to have been placed with foster carers who had the time, effort and energy to pursue the very long and uh, difficult process of achieving adoptions. Um, which often involves, you know, legal costs for themselves because departments just aren't... It isn't part of the cultural DNA of these departments to, to facilitate adoptions very easily, so they have to fight for them. So these children have become lucky because their carers come, adoptive parents become their advocates. Yeah. And... Uh, but I, I can't... I, I don't... I, I would suggest that all... I'd say every child in care... Not every child in care... Would have some level of disability, difficulty... Yeah. Suboptimal starting line. So, am, am I right in saying that your background is more a legal background? Or? No, I'm a historian by training. Right. Um, and would I be right in saying that we don't have data available to tell us much about these kids, either in the short term or in the long term? Um, if you have a look at my report, New South Wales, as part of the Tune review, did establish that there are significant costs um, involved with care leavers and it's, it's costs involved in the kind of services that reflect disadvantage, uh, homelessness, domestic violence, child protection itself. Sure. Um, as far as I'm aware, the sort of publicly available data that you're talking about it ha has not been developed in many jurisdictions. I, I would say, you know, in terms of the way the social services sector collects, analyses and uses data, we are many, many light years behind, you know, the tech revolution in other sectors. Yeah. And that, I would say, is part of the reason why at the, at the federal level there's been this um, embrace of the investment approach, which is, is data-driven to try and find out what the real costs are and then make some rational decisions about where we can and, invest and in that. Yeah. Costs, but, but actual outcomes. Outcomes and... Yeah. It's the human. The human cost in the end is what we're what we're focusing on. For example, we don't seem to have very good long-term follow-up of people who've been adopted. Well, it's part of that is that adoptions are so rare that there isn't a large group of people who we can follow up with in Australia, at least. Adoption is more common in the United States and in America and in the UK. And the studies do show that. Um, Children who are adopted compared to children who will who spend their life in sort of unstable care have better outcomes in life, and I think that that sounds intuitive, intuitively correct when you consider how damaging the sort of process of turn and yeah, disability is. It might, might sound intuitively correct, but there really isn't much data around, is there, about about this? Other than those studies, and not in Australia, definitely not in Australia. Okay. You, you mentioned that the two-year time limit seems harsh. Why do you think that sounds harsh? I said it seems harsh, but I don't believe it is. I think... It, Why don't you believe that's harsh? Because two years is a long time in the life of a child. Mm. You've got a system in New South Wales, for example, where children spend 12.5 years on average in care, where 35% of them are moved three times or more within a year. Yeah. Um, to the uninitiated, it may seem harsh, but the problem this is the problem with our systems. They run on adult time. They need to run on children's time and reflect the fact that children need timely stability if they are you know if they are to find the families that they need, if they are to have the stability that all children need. Mm. So I'd say it seems harsh, but I I don't think it's harsh. I think it is practical and realistic and necessary. Right. Um, 
the, the children that you would envisage uh, being the ones that, that would be available for adoption, have you looked into the families that uh, they may come from? Is there any data on them? In what sense? Uh, what form of uh, disability do they suffer from that may mean their children should not be in their care? Or? The, 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 the children who would be the most likely candidates for adoption would come from families that are generally described across child protection as complex. That means that they don't tend to just have one problem. They have a host of problems, everything from drug and alcohol, particularly um, domestic violence, welfare dependence, uh, homelessness. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a complex, as I said before, difficult set of lifelong circumstances that we are asking services to, um, to fix and unpack and fix and enable children to be able to stay safely in those homes. So that would be a rough demographic, de demographic social profile of those families. Right. And... Do you think there is pressure on governments um, to have children adopted? Well, I would say there is. Uh, compared to those who support the status quo, I think there is a clear advocacy imbalance in terms of who supports adoption and who would and who its critics are, and that extends down to the fact that most of the existing service providers and most of the existing departments are wedded firmly to the idea of family preservation and want to maintain the taboo on adoption. So if advocacy for adoption is winning, it is winning based on having established the evidence that the current system is failing and uh, getting the attention of policy makers to realise that what they are doing um, is as I, which is why I call my book The Madness of Australian Child Protection, amounts to doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result but not getting it and actually making the system worse. Sure. But, and, and I think, don't think anyone here would argue that the present system is working well, but why is the system of early adoption going to work better? Where it's is the not, evidence for that? It's early adoption relative to long-term care, so it's not actually early adoption for the points that I made. Um, because children will have stable and permanent homes, they won't be churned through, um, in some cases, up to 20 foster, fam uh, foster families. Uh, they will have uh, ongoing uh, relationship with a family after 18 and all the support and other things um, that that entail. Um, it will mean if we uh, have an accountable system that the incentives will be right for, ser for uh, service providers to figure out, truly figure out what works and what helps families and make their services more effective so that we won't have, we, hopefully we won't have many, if any, adoptions if they can get it right and find out what the keys are to helping families effectively. Um, the other big issue is that we need to make sure that uh, all our siloed services at the state level, um, homelessness, drug and alcohol, uh, mental health, that they all Absolutely. work together, Absolutely. and that is that is a key part of what um, New South Wales is trying to do: trying to integrate all those services and um, basically make it, yeah, and, and basically make it uh, consumer-centred, so that the package is targeted based on the individual needs of the family. Um, they're even talking about having, you know, I guess, ultimately they're talking about commissioning, which is a step towards you know even having you know a consumer-driven system, you know, like an NDIS for child protection services, which will you know empower people to get the services they need. So, again, um, there is no magic bullet. Adoption is certainly not the magic bullet for, um, for child protection. Mm. But, and I reiterate what I said before, even the best, most accountable, most effective child protection system, given the wicked nature of the problems in these families, there are going to be some come children who simply cannot go home. The question then becomes, what is the better option? Is it to, to remain in care until they're 18? or is it to, to use adoption to give them a safe and permanent family? Well, I don't th there's no evidence to give us the answer at the present time, is there? Well, there are those studies that show that children in, who are adopted do better than children who... Not in Australia. Well, internationally there is, because there isn't in Australia because we, don't, we haven't done adoptions for 30 years. OK. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Freelander. Um, 
So, Dr. Sam, just a, a few summarising questions. You mentioned the advocacy imbalance, mm. um, which I think is a, a critical point. Do you think that advocacy imbalance is, um, has come about because of the fragmented view of um, the sort of generally cohesive view of a number of departments um, mm. in, around, the, around the country, yeah. basically feeling that, believing that a family preservation at all costs yeah. is more important? And what do you think... Um, is there anything specific that, or constructive that you think um, can be done from a national perspective sure. to cut through that paradigm of thought? Look, aside from yeah, data, there is, as I said before, there is a cultural resistance, particularly within departments, around adopt around adoption, mm. and belief that family preservation should be pursued at all costs. Mm. There is also the NGO sector, which, to put it as politely as I can, have a vested interest in the continuation of the status quo because many of their services are dependent on governments continuing to fund the current system as it currently operates. What can we do to drive cultural change and what can the federal government do? Well, you've got to realise that for people working in the sector, it can be professional and social death to talk about adoption and support adoption because... People have invested their careers and their sense of their self and their status as caring and you know caring professionals in the idea that adoption shouldn't occur and that it's inherently harmful. So mm. that's a big, big. I'm setting a, it's a big task of policymakers. So, but what can policymakers practically do? So, if we're going to have any change, we need to have political leadership at the state level. What can the federal government do to try and help drive that? Well, this is partly why I think it needs the federal government can use its. Well, oversight without direct policy responsibility to try and guide um, states and territories in the right direction, provide uh, some political support for uh, yeah for, for, for reforms, mm. but also use data. You know, mm. the facts of the if we get the right data, the facts of the fact. Mm. You know, are we achieving effective early intervention and prevention? Mm. You tell me if you if I if you can tell me if you can show me what the re-reports figures were. Mm and then tell me what they are in five years' time, that will tell us whether we are doing it effectively or if we need to do things differently. Same with restoration, same with permanency. So that's where I think the federal government can be an advocate, but not again, not just for adoption, but for system-wide reforms that, that sets the right priorities around achieving the right goals, which are, as I say, prevention, restoration and permanency. Mm. And having that consistent framework as a sort yeah. of an umbrella over, yeah. over the states. It's, it's, it's like all of these systems. If mm. in all, you know, government-funded systems, it's you either... It, it's, two, it's two ways to go about it. Either, you know, if you set the funding parameters, mm. you get what you pay for. Yeah. But you can also use data to uh, use the rule that what gets measured mm. gets done. Mm. And I would say exactly. you know, reducing... Reducing uh, restoration breakdowns, uh, reducing drifting care are the sort of things that the federal government can say, well, look, let's see how well you're doing against your own... You know, these are the, their own stated goals of the system that we're talking about. We're not creating new goals. This is what they say they're already doing. Well, let's, ho let's hold them accountable. Let's allow them also to learn from different jurisdictions. That would be part of this as well. You know, so West Australia might have a new program that you know, goes gangbusters and works, and so other states will start, um, will start trying, trying to learn from those from those systems. So, mm. you know, a bit of contestability, a bit of friendly competition, a bit of shared learning would go mm. a long way and would also allow us to have a, a more informed debate. I, I might have said this before, but when the current figures are released by um, Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, I, could, I can almost write the newspaper stories with my eyes closed. They'll, they'll mm. talk about the headline figures, kids in care growing up, They'll have a quote from either me or Warren Mundine or Ned Sezelja, Senator mm. Sezelja, saying, you know, we need more adoptions. On the other hand, we'll have, um, you know, Andrew McCallum or Dorothy Scott come out and say, no, we need early intervention. And that's the end of And that mm. debate ends there. Mm. There's no way for those figures to drive a meaningful debate around what mm. the system is and isn't delivering. The national framework I'm proposing would at least get us mm. to that point where we could start asking some hard questions. Asking, yeah. And if I've learned anything in um, 
working in public policy in Australia for 10 years. We are wedded to data like you would not believe. We believe you can craft the most beautiful philosophical argument you like, but it's empirical evidence, facts, figures mm. that tend to drive the debate, mm. and that's where uh, we need good data mm -hmm. to, um, to drive the debate along and move it beyond this polarised stasis that we currently have. Yeah. And I, indeed, um, just to uh, wrap up what I'll ask if the deputy has, or the others have other questions, but um, are there any other, other questions? From, from, question. yeah. I just want to okay. know what Dr Summit's understanding might be of the existing profile of kids in out-of-home care. The make I mean, I'm very interested to know how many of those kids have high complex needs, how many are of Indigenous descent, um, you know, and... Well, a third and, of all... You know, because I think this has implications for your open adoption... For, for your kids being Indigenous? A whole range of children okay. with complex I, I, I needs. I understand what you're saying. I do understand um, what you're saying. You know, yep. Yep. the number of kids who are adopted, even with these reforms, yep. is so minuscule. Yep. It's less than yep. zero point six or something. Yep. When I last calculated yep. it, it's like nothing. Okay, that is a more the reasonable point. Um, so my yeah, okay, you know, uh, yeah, gut feeling yeah, sure. is instantly yeah. to invest and yeah. drive into those other two prongs yeah. because local adoption is such okay. a yeah. tiny, tiny part of the equation. Those kids with the high needs have been created by the system. Okay, They've been left in homes that are bad for too long and been abused and developed their problems. They've then been churned through the system and drifted and not had stability and that has compounded the damage. So, okay, I agree. We've got damaged 9, 10-year-olds, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-olds in care now who are not going to be adopted, could not be adopted. That's not an argument against adoption. That's an argument against continuing with the current system we have. Part of what, uh, part of what the key to, to looking at permanency and trying to look at more effective restoration and prevention is to try and short-circuit that damaging process that the current system uh, produces. We don't... This is, a, this is, this is a, a gross comment, but I'm going to say it because, it was, again, it was a turning point. Um, some of you may know Louise Voigt, um, who used to be the head of Bernardo's in New South Wales. Bernardo's was the, the one... Um, she's now deceased, uh, greatly missed. I, after I put out the first bit, couple of work, pieces of work that I did, um, she said to me, yes, we need more adoptions, but she said there's no point... Uh, there's no point trying to adopt kids when they're 9 and 10 and they are... Uh, I don't want to use the term that she was saying, but it was mm -hmm. an abhorrent practice that, you know... I don't actually don't want to say what I said, but that was that switched. That, this is a veteran of systems in the UK and in Australia, um, who, and that tells me that that told me that a system that is damaging kids in this way and it's, it is a system that needs to change, and it can change. It, and so you're right. We, there's a whole generation of children in care now who could not be adopted, but they that we, was well, not my sorry. You have misunderstood me. Sure. I, I'm. Um, they may that was. They are not my words. Sure. So I am asking you what your understanding of that profile yeah. was, which I'm sure would have profound implications for the kinds of people that may come forward for adopting um, kids. I, I don't know how the sure. system is yeah. matching people to children. Yeah. I'm not privy to any of that at this yeah. point. Um, but my observation is that... Um, I look at very large numbers yep. of children in out-of-home care and I look at absolutely minuscule numbers of adoptions mm. notwithstanding reforms in New South Wales which have doubled those numbers so far. So, you know, maybe they'll continue to escalate and, and uh, that's certainly what the Commonwealth Departments are waiting mm. to see what happens. But even if they continue to double every year, it is the tiniest number imaginable. And so, you know, there's a whole lot of kids relying on us to, sure. you know, Look. ensure that they have a better quality of life no. than now Again. that are never going to go down that road of adoption. Currently. But if we can set the system up to do prevention, restoration, 
as well statutory, far better than we currently do without the overemphasis on, on family preservation that we currently have. Hopefully, down the track, we won't have the same number of children with high needs in care because they will not have been abused by the system that is meant to protect them, which is done too little, too late to it's remove them. system abuse. Mm. But anyway, oh, that's can, right. Can I also make a point? Sure. A lot of these kids are damaged before they're born, don't forget. Sure. Mm. And mm. family preservation can sometimes prevent other children being damaged. In what sense? In providing supports for those families who may have okay. drug and alcohol problems, so have genetic. Uh, isn't that isn't that a very very heavy burden to rent, to rest on very very slender shoulders? Indeed. You're asking children to be parents, isn't? Isn't? No, that, no, no. I'm not suggesting. No, 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 no. I'm not suggesting that. But if you remove a child from a family, yep. it has a major effect on that family, not just on the child. Oh, no question. But it's a question of, of it's a it's a question. But if but that, that's the that's the hard and unavoidable reality of child protection. That at some point, if parents can't take responsibility for children, mm -hmm. somebody, the state needs to step in and protect children who have independent rights and also support that family. Sorry, and also support that family. As I've said throughout, I fully support all efforts to improve effective early intervention and prevention. I just do not support what we currently do, which is extend those efforts, prolong those efforts to the point that children are damaged, and so that we end up with children... I can actually remember the term, Louise, but I won't, I won't use it, who, where we get children to that stage because we have neglected to intervene early enough and provide the appropriate support. and. In many cases, the permanency. Yeah. None of us would argue with that. Sure. Dr. Samet, um, any any further comments or questions? Dr. Samet, I just wanted to thank you for your submission, and I uh, thank you for your your um, passion and commitment to this. Um, the principle that early local adoption um, can be one of the drivers of a fairer and more equal Australia, and I look forward to um, us furthering this inquiry and. Uh, and uh, submitting our recommendations without your submission, um, you know, the, indeed with your submission that has uh, made this inquiry all the more fulsome. So thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank, thank you, you Committee much. Members. Thank you. Thank you.